Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 8 Things the Germans Lack Section 1 Among Germans at the present day, it does not suffice to have intellect. One is actually forced to appropriate it, to lay claim to it. Maybe I know the Germans. Perhaps... I may tell them a few home truths. Modern Germany represents such an enormous store of inherited and acquired capacity that for some time it might spend this accumulated treasure even with some prodigality. It is no superior culture that has ultimately become prevalent with this modern tendency, nor is it by any means delicate taste or noble beauty of the instincts but rather a number of virtues more manly than any that other European countries can show. An amount of good spirits and self-respect, plenty of firmness in human relations and in the reciprocity of duties, much industry and much perseverance, and a certain inherited soberness, which is much more in need of a spur than of a break. Let me add that in this country People still obey, without feeling that obedience humiliates, and no one despises his opponent. You observe that it is my desire to be fair to the Germans, and in this respect I should not like to be untrue to myself. I must therefore also state my objections to them. It costs a good deal to attain to a position of power for power stultifies. The Germans, they were once called a people of thinkers. Do they really think at all at present? Nowadays the Germans are bored by intellect. They mistrust intellect. Politics have swallowed up all earnestness for all really intellectual things. Germany, Germany above all. Translator's footnote. The German National Hymn, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. End footnote. I fear this was the death blow to German philosophy. Are there any German philosophers? Are there any German poets? Are there any good German books? People ask me abroad. I blush, but with that pluck which is peculiar to me, even in moments of desperation. I reply, yes, Bismarck. Could I have dared to confess what books are read today? Cursed instinct of mediocrity. 
Section 2 What might not German intellect have been? Who has not thought sadly upon this question? But this nation has deliberately stultified itself for almost a thousand years. Nowhere else have the two great European narcotics, alcohol and Christianity, been so viciously abused as in Germany. Recently, a third opiate was added to the list, one which in itself alone would have sufficed to complete the ruin of all subtle and daring intellectual animation. I speak of music, our costive and constipating German music. How much peevish ponderousness, paralysis, dampness, dressing-gown, languor, and beer is there not in German intelligence? How is it really possible that young men, who consecrate their whole lives to the pursuit of intellectual ends, should not feel within them the first instinct of intellectuality, the self-preservative instinct of the intellect? and should drink beer. The alcoholism of learned youths does not incapacitate them for becoming scholars. A man quite devoid of intellect may be a great scholar. But it is a problem in every other respect. Where can that soft degeneracy not be found which is produced in the intellect by beer? I once laid my finger upon a case of this sort, which became almost famous, the degeneration of our leading German free spirit, the clever David Strauss, into the author of a suburban gospel and new faith. Not in vain had he sung the praises of the dear old brown liquor in verse, true unto death. Section 3 I have spoken of German intellect. I have said that it is becoming coarser and shallower. Is that enough? In reality something very different frightens me, and that is the ever-steady decline of German earnestness, German profundity, and German passion in things intellectual. Not only intellectuality, but also pathos has altered. From time to time I come in touch with German universities. What an extraordinary atmosphere prevails among their scholars! What barrenness! And what self-satisfied and lukewarm intellectuality! For anyone to point to German science as an argument against me would show that he grossly misunderstood my meaning, while it would also prove that he had not read a word of my writings. For seventeen years, I have done little else than expose the de-intellectualizing influence of our modern scientific studies. The severe slavery to which every individual nowadays is condemned by the enormous range covered by the sciences is the chief reason why fuller, richer, and profounder natures can find no education or educators that are fit for them. Nothing is more deleterious to this age than the superfluity of pretentious loafers and fragmentary human beings. Our universities are really the involuntary forcing-houses for this kind of withering up of the instincts of intellectuality. And the whole of Europe is beginning to know this. Politics, on a large scale, deceive no one. 
Germany is becoming ever more and more the flatland of Europe. I am still in search of a German with whom I could be serious after my own fashion. And how much more am I in search of one with whom I could be cheerful? The Twilight of the Idols Ah, what man today would be capable of understanding the kind of seriousness from which a philosopher is recovering in this work? It is our cheerfulness that people understand least. Section 4 Let us examine another aspect of the question. It is not only obvious that German culture is declining, but adequate reasons for this decline are not lacking. After all, nobody can spend more than he has. This is true of individuals. It is also true of nations. If you spend your strength in acquiring power, or in politics on a large scale, or in economy, or in universal commerce, or in parliamentarism, or in military interests, if you dissipate the modicum of reason, of earnestness, of will, and of self-control that constitutes your nature in one particular fashion, you cannot dissipate it in another. A culture state is merely a modern idea. Translator's footnote. The word Kulturstaat, culture state, has become a standard expression in the German language and is applied to the leading European states. End translator's note. The one lives upon the other. The one flourishes at the expense of the other. All great periods of culture have been periods of political decline. That which is great from the standpoint of culture was always unpolitical, even anti-political. Goethe's heart opened at the coming of Napoleon. It closed at the thought of the wars of liberation. At the very moment when Germany arose as a great power in the world of politics, France won new importance as a force in the world of culture. Even at this moment, a large amount of fresh intellectual earnestness and passion has emigrated to Paris. The question of pessimism, for instance, and the question of Wagner. In France, Almost all psychological and artistic questions are considered with incomparably more subtlety and thoroughness than they are in Germany. The Germans are even incapable of this kind of earnestness. In the history of European culture, the rise of the empire signifies, above all, a displacement of the center of gravity. Everywhere people are already aware of this. In things that really matter, and these, after all, constitute culture. The Germans are no longer worth considering. I ask you, can you show me one single man of brains who could be mentioned in the same breath with other European thinkers, like your Goethe, your Hegel, your Heinrich Heine, and your Schopenhauer? The fact that there is no longer a single German philosopher worth mentioning is an increasing wonder. Section 5 Everything that matters has been lost sight of by the whole of the higher educational system of Germany. The end, quite as much as the means to that end. People forget that education, 
the process of cultivation itself, is the end and not the empire. They forget that the educator is required for this end, and not the public school teacher and university scholar. Educators are needed, who are themselves educated, superior, and noble intellects, who can prove that they are thus qualified, that they are ripe and mellow products of culture at every moment of their lives, in word and in gesture. Not the learned louts, who, like superior wet-nurses, are now thrust upon the youth of the land by public schools and universities. With but rare exceptions, that which is lacking in Germany is the first prerequisite of education, that is to say, the educators. Hence the decline of German culture. One of those rarest exceptions is my highly respected friend, Jakob Burkholt of Bele. To him, above all, is Bele indebted for its foremost position in human culture. What the higher schools of Germany really do accomplish is this, that they brutally train a vast crowd of young men, in the smallest amount of time possible, to become useful and exploitable servants of the state. Higher education and a vast crowd these terms contradict each other from the start. All superior education can only concern the exception. A man must be privileged in order to have a right to such a great privilege. All great and beautiful things cannot be a common possession. Pulcrum est paucorum hominum. What is it that brings about the decline of German culture? The fact that higher education is no longer a special privilege the democracy of a process of cultivation that has become general, common. Nor must it be forgotten that the privileges of the military profession, by urging many too many to attend the higher schools, involve the downfall of the latter. In modern Germany, nobody is at liberty to give his children a noble education. In regard to their teachers, their curricula, and their educational aims, our higher schools are one and all established upon a fundamentally doubtful mediocre basis. Everywhere, too, a hastiness which is unbecoming rules supreme, just as if something would be forfeited if the young man were not finished at the age of twenty-three, or did not know how to reply to the most essential question, which calling to choose. The superior kind of man, if you please, does not like callings precisely because he knows himself to be called. He has time. He takes time. He cannot possibly think of becoming finished. In the matter of higher culture, a man of thirty years is a beginner, a child. Our overcrowded public schools are accumulation of foolishly manufactured public school masters are a scandal. Maybe there are very serious motives for defending this state of affair, as was shown quite recently by the professors of Heidelberg. But there can be no reasons for doing so. Section 6 In order to be true to my nature, which is affirmative, and which concerns itself with contradictions and criticism only indirectly and with reluctance, 
let me state at once what the three objects are for which we need educators. People must learn to see, they must learn to think, and they must learn to speak and to write. The object of all three of these pursuits is a noble culture, to learn to see, to accustom the eye to calmness, to patience, and to allow things to come up to it, to defer judgment, and to acquire the habit of approaching and grasping an individual case from all sides. This is the first preparatory schooling of intellectuality. One must not respond immediately to a stimulus. One must acquire a command of the obstructing and isolating instincts. To learn to see, as I understand this matter, amounts almost to that which in popular language is called strength of will. Its essential feature is precisely not to wish to see, to be able to postpone one's decision. All lack of intellectuality, all vulgarity, arises out of the inability to resist a stimulus. One must respond or react. Every impulse is indulged. In many cases, such necessary action is already a sign of morbidity, of decline, and a symptom of exhaustion. Almost everything that coarse popular language characterizes as vicious is merely that psychological inability to refrain from reacting. As an instance of what it means to have learnt to see, let me state that a man thus trained will as a learner have become generally slow, suspicious, and refractory. With hostile calm he will first allow every kind of strange and new thing to come right up to him, he will draw back his hand at its approach. To stand with all the doors of one's soul wide open, to lie slavishly in the dust before every trivial fact at all times of the day, to be strained, ready for the leap, in order to deposit oneself, to plunge oneself into other souls and other things, in short, the famous objectivity of modern times is bad taste. It is essentially vulgar and cheap. Section 7 As to learning how to think, our schools no longer have any notion of such a thing. Even at the universities, among the actual scholars in philosophy, logic as a theory, as a practical pursuit, and as a business, is beginning to die out. Turn to any German book. You will not find the remotest trace of a realization that there is such a thing as a technique, a plan of study, a will to mastery, in the matter of thinking. That thinking insists upon being learnt just as dancing insists upon being learnt, and that thinking insists upon being learnt as a form of dancing. What single German can still say he knows from experience that delicate shudder which light footfalls in matters intellectual cause to pervade his whole body and limbs? Stiff awkwardness in intellectual attitudes, 
and the clumsy fist in grasping. These things are so essentially German that outside Germany they are absolutely confounded with the German spirit. The German has no fingers for delicate nuances. The fact that the people of Germany have actually tolerated their philosophers, more particularly that most deformed cripple of ideas that has ever existed, the great Kant, gives one no inadequate notion of their native elegance. For, truth to tell, dancing in all its forms cannot be excluded from the curriculum of all noble education. Dancing with feet, with ideas, with words, and, need I add, that one must also be able to dance with the pen, that one must learn how to write. But at this stage I should become utterly enigmatical to German readers. End chapter 8 This recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 9 Skirmishes in a War with the Age Part 1 1 my impossible people. Seneca, or the Toreador of Virtue. Rousseau, or the Return to Nature, in Impuris Naturalibus. Schiller, or the Moral Trumpeter of Sickingen. Dante, or the Hyena that writes poetry in tombs. Kant, or can't as an illegible character. Victor Hugo, or the lighthouse on the sea of nonsense. List, or the school of racing after women. Georges Sand, or Lactea Ubertas in plain English, the cow with plenty of beautiful milk. Michelet, or Enthusiasm in its shirt-sleeves. Carlyle, or Pessimism after undigested meals. John Stuart Mill, or Offensive Lucidity. The Brothers Goncourt, or The Two Ajaxes, fighting with Homer. Music by Offenbach, Zola, or The Love of Stinking. 2. Renan, Theology, or The Corruption of Reason by Original Sin, Peren, Christianity, and Peren. Proof of this. Renan, who, even in those rare cases, where he ventures to say either yes or no on a general question, 
invariably misses the point with painful regularity. For instance, he would fain associate science and nobility, but surely it must be obvious that science is democratic. He seems to be actuated by a strong desire to represent an aristocracy of intellect, but at the same time he grovels on his knees, and not only on his knees, before the opposite doctrine, the gospel of the humble. What is the good of all free-spiritedness, modernity, mockery, and acrobatic suppleness, if in one's belly one is still a Christian, a Catholic, and even a priest? Reynaud's forte, precisely like that of a Jesuit and father-confessor, lies in his seductiveness. His intellectuality is not devoid of that unctuous complacency of a parson. Like all priests, he becomes dangerous only when he loves. He is second to none in the art of skillfully worshipping a dangerous thing, this intellect of Renan's, which in its action is enervating, is one calamity the more for poor sick France, with her willpower all going to pieces. 3. Sans bouve. There is naught of man in him. He is full of petty spite towards all virile spirits. He wanders erratically, he is subtle, inquisitive, a little bored, forever with his ear to keyholes. At bottom, a woman, with all woman's revengefulness and sensuality. As a psychologist, he is a genius of slander, inexhaustively rich in means to this end. No one understands better than he how to introduce a little poison into praise. In his fundamental instincts he is plebeian, and next of kin to Rousseau's resentful spirit. Consequently, he is a romanticist, for beneath all romanticism Rousseau's instinct for revenge grunts and frets. He is a revolutionary, but kept within bounds by funk. He is embarrassed in the face of everything that is strong, public opinion, the academy, the court, even Port Royal. He is embittered against everything great in men and things, against everything that believes in itself. Enough of a poet and of a female to be able to feel greatness as power. He is always turning and twisting because, like the proverbial worm, he constantly feels that he is being trodden upon. As a critic, he has no standard of judgment, no guiding principle, no backbone. Although he possesses the tongue of the cosmopolitan libertine which can chatter about a thousand things, he has not the courage even to acknowledge his libertinage. As a historian, he has no philosophy, and lacks the power of philosophical vision. Hence his refusal to act the part of a judge, and his adoption of the mask of objectivity in all important matters. His attitude is better in regard to all those things in which subtle and effete taste is the highest tribunal. In these things he really does have 
the courage of his own personality. He really does enjoy his own nature. He actually is a master. In some respects he is a prototype of Baudelaire. 4. The Imitation of Christ is one of those books which I cannot even take hold of without physical loathing. It exhales a perfume of the eternally feminine, which to appreciate fully one must be a Frenchman or a Wagnerite. This saint has a way of speaking about love which makes even Parisiennes feel a little curious. I am told that that most intelligent of Jesuits, Auguste Comte, who wished to lead his compatriots back to Rome by the circuitous route of science, drew his inspiration from this book. And I believe it. Quote, the religion of the heart. Unquote. 5. George Eliot. They are rid of the Christian God, and therefore think it all the more incumbent upon them to hold tight to Christian morality. This is an English way of reasoning, but let us not take it ill in moral females, a la Eliot. In England, every man who indulges in any trifling emancipation from theology must retrieve his honor in the most terrifying manner by becoming a moral fanatic. That is how they do penance in that country. As for us, we act differently. When we renounce the Christian faith, we abandon all right to Christian morality. This is not by any means self-evident, and in defiance of English shallow pates, the point must be made ever more and more plain. Christianity is a system, a complete outlook upon the world, conceived as a whole. If its leading concept, the belief in God, is wrenched from it, the whole is destroyed. Nothing vital remains in our grasp. Christianity presupposes that man does not and cannot know what is good or bad for him. The Christian believes in God, who alone can know these things. Christian morality is a command. Its origin is transcendental. It is beyond all criticism, all right to criticism. It is true only on condition that God is truth. It stands or falls with the belief in God. If the English really believe that they know intuitively and of their own accord what is good and evil, if, therefore, they assert that they no longer need Christianity as a guarantee of morality, this in itself is simply the outcome of the dominion of Christian valuations, and a proof of the strength and profundity of this dominion. It only shows that the origin of English morality has been forgotten, and that its exceedingly relative right to exist is no longer felt. For Englishmen, morality is not yet a problem. 6. Georges Sand I have been reading the first Lettre d'un Voyageur. 
like everything that springs from Rousseau's influence, it is false, made up, blown out, and exaggerated. I cannot endure this bright wallpaper style, any more than I can bear the vulgar strivings after generous feelings. The worst feature about it is certainly the coquettish adoption of male attributes by this female, after the manner of ill-bred schoolboys. And how cold she must have been inwardly all the while, this insufferable artist! She wound herself up like a clock, and wrote, As cold as Hugo and Balzac, as cold as all romanticists are as soon as they begin to write. And how self-complacently she must have lain there, this prolific ink-yielding cow! for she had something German in her, German in the bad sense, just as Rousseau, her master, had. Something which could only have been possible when French taste was declining. And Renan adores her. 7. A moral for psychologists do not go in for any notebook psychology. Never observe for the sake of observing. Such things lead to a false point of view, to a squint, to something forced and exaggerated. To experience things on purpose, this is not a bit of good. In the midst of an experience, a man should not turn his eyes upon himself. In such cases, any eye becomes the evil eye. A born psychologist instinctively avoids seeing for the sake of seeing, and the same holds good of the born painter. Such a man never works from nature. He leaves it to his instinct, to his camera obscura to sift, and to define the, quote, fact, unquote, quote, nature, unquote, the, quote, experience, unquote. The general idea, the conclusion, the result, is the only thing that reaches his consciousness. He knows nothing of that willful process of deducing from particular cases. What is the result when a man sets about this matter differently? When, for instance, after the manner of Parisian novelists, he goes in for notebook psychology on a large and small scale. Such a man is constantly spying on reality, and every evening he bears home a handful of fresh curios. But look at the result. A mass of daubs, at best a piece of mosaic, in any case something heaped together, restless and garish. The Goncourt are the greatest sinners in this respect. They cannot put three sentences together which are not absolutely painful to the eye, the eye of the psychologist. From an artistic standpoint, nature is no model. It exaggerates, distorts, and leaves gaps. Nature is the accident. To study from nature seems to me a bad sign. It betrays submission, weakness, fatalism. This lying in the dust before trivial facts is unworthy of a thorough artist. To see what is, 
is the function of another order of intellects, the anti-artistic, the matter of fact. One must know who one is. 8. Concerning the psychology of the artist. For art to be possible at all, that is to say, in order that an aesthetic mode of action and of observation may exist, a certain preliminary physiological state is indispensable. Ecstasy. Translator's footnote. The German word Rausch, as used by Nietzsche here, suggests a blend of our two English words, intoxication and elation. End translator's note. This state of ecstasy must first have intensified the susceptibility of the whole machine. Otherwise, no art is possible. All kinds of ecstasy, however differently produced, have this power to create art, and above all the state dependent upon sexual excitement, this most venerable and primitive form of ecstasy. The same applies to that ecstasy which is the outcome of all great desires, all strong passions. The ecstasy of the feast, of the arena, of the act of bravery, of victory, of all extreme action, the ecstasy of cruelty, the ecstasy of destruction, the ecstasy following upon certain meteorological influences, as, for instance, that of springtime, or upon the use of narcotics, and finally, the ecstasy of will, that ecstasy which results from accumulated and surging willpower. The essential feature of ecstasy is the feeling of increased strength and abundance. Actuated by this feeling, a man gives of himself to things, he forces them to partake of his riches, he does violence to them. This proceeding is called idealizing. Let us rid ourselves of a prejudice here. Idealizing does not consist, as is generally believed, in a suppression or an elimination of detail, or of unessential features. A stupendous accentuation of the principal characteristics is by far the most decisive factor at work, and in consequence the minor characteristics vanish. 9. In this state a man enriches everything from out his own abundance. What he sees, what he wills, he sees distended, compressed, strong, overladen with power. He transfigures things until they reflect his power, until they are stamped with his perfection. This compulsion to transfigure into the beautiful is art. Everything, even that which he is not, is nevertheless to such a man a means of rejoicing over himself. In art man rejoices over himself as perfection. 
it is possible to imagine a contrary state, a specifically anti-artistic state of the instincts, a state in which a man impoverishes, attenuates, and draws the blood from everything. And, truth to tell, history is full of such anti-artists, of such creatures of low vitality, who have no choice but to appropriate everything they see, and to suck its blood and make it thinner. This is the case with the genuine Christian, Pascal, for instance. There is no such thing as a Christian who is also an artist. Let no one be so childish as to suggest Raphael or any homeopathic Christian of the nineteenth century as an objection to this statement. Raphael said, yea. Raphael did, yea. Consequently, Raphael was no Christian. 10. What is the meaning of the antithetical concepts Apollonian and Dionysian? which I have introduced into the vocabulary of aesthetic, as representing two distinct modes of ecstasy. Apollonian ecstasy acts above all as a force stimulating the eye, so that it acquires the power of vision. The painter, the sculptor, the epic poet, are essentially visionaries. In the Dionysian state, on the other hand, the whole system of passions is stimulated and intensified, so that it discharges itself by all the means of expression at once, and vents all its power of representation, of imitation, of transfiguration, of transformation, together with every kind of mimicry and histrionic display at the same time. The essential feature remains the facility in transforming, the inability to refrain from reaction, a similar state to that of certain hysterical patients, who at the slightest hint assume any role. It is impossible for the Dionysian artist not to understand any suggestion. No outward sign of emotion escapes him. He possesses the instinct of comprehension and of divination in the highest degree, just as he is capable of the most perfect art of communication. He enters into every skin, into every passion. He is continually changing himself. Music, as we understand it today, is likewise a general excitation and discharge of the emotions. But, notwithstanding this, it is only the remnant of a much richer world of emotional expression, a mere residuum of Dionysian histrionism. For music to be made possible as a special art, quite a number of senses, and particularly the muscular sense, had to be paralyzed, at least relatively, for all rhythm still appeals to our muscles to a certain extent. And thus, Man no longer imitates and represents physically everything he feels, as soon as he feels it. Nevertheless, that is the normal Dionysian state, and, in any case, its primitive state. Music is the slowly attained specialization of this state, 
at the cost of kindred capacities. 11. The actor, the mime, the dancer, the musician, and the lyricist are in their instincts fundamentally related, but they have gradually specialized in their particular branch and become separated, even to the point of contradiction. The lyricist remained united with the musician for the longest period of time, and the actor with the dancer. The architect manifests neither a Dionysian nor an Apollonian state. In his case, it is the great act of will, the will that moveth mountains, the ecstasy of the great will, which inspires to art. The most powerful men have always inspired architects. The architect has always been under the suggestion of power. In the architectural structure, man's pride, man's triumph over gravitation, man's will to power, assume a visible form. Architecture is a sort of oratory of power by means of forms. Now it is persuasive, even flattering, and at other times merely commanding. The highest sensation of power and security finds expression in grandeur of style. That power which no longer requires to be proved, which scorns to please, which responds only with difficulty, which feels no witnesses around it, which is oblivious of the fact that it is being opposed, which relies on itself fatalistically, and is a law among laws. Such power expresses itself quite naturally in grandeur of style. 12. I have been reading the life of Thomas Carlyle, that unconscious and involuntary farce, that heroical moral interpretation of dyspeptic moods, Carlyle, a man of strong words and attitudes, a rhetorician by necessity, who seems ever to be tormented by the desire of finding some kind of strong faith, and by his inability to do so. In this respect, a typical romanticist. To yearn for a strong faith is not the proof of a strong faith, but rather the reverse. If a man have a strong faith, he can indulge in the luxury of skepticism. He is strong enough, firm enough, well-knit enough for such a luxury. Carlyle stupefies something in himself by means of the fortissimo of his reverence for men of a strong faith, and his rage over those who are less foolish. He is in sore need of noise. An attitude of constant and passionate dishonesty towards himself. This is his proprium. By virtue of this he is and remains interesting. Of course, in England he is admired precisely on account of his honesty. Well, that is English and in view of the fact that the English are the nation of consummate cant, it is not only comprehensible, but also very natural. At bottom, Carlyle is an English atheist who makes it a point of honor not to be one. 13. Emerson, 
He is much more enlightened, much broader, more versatile, and more subtle than Carlyle. But above all, he is happier. He is one who instinctively lives on ambrosia, and who leaves the indigestible parts of things on his plate. Compared with Carlyle, he is a man of taste. Carlyle, who was very fond of him, nevertheless declared that he does not give us enough to chew. This is perfectly true, but it is not unfavorable to Emerson. Emerson possesses that kindly intellectual cheerfulness which deprecates overmuch seriousness. He has absolutely no idea of how old he is already, and how young he will yet be. He could have said of himself, in Lope de Vega's words, Yo me sucedo a mi mismo. His mind is always finding reasons for being contented and even thankful and at times he gets preciously near to that serene superiority of the worthy bourgeois, who, returning from an amorous rendezvous, tanquam rebene gesta, said gratefully, Ut disint vires, tamen est laudanda voluptas. 14. Anti-Darwin As to the famous struggle for existence, it seems to me, for the present, to be more of an assumption than a fact. It does occur, but as an exception. The general condition of life is not one of want or famine, but rather of riches, of lavish luxuriance, and even of absurd prodigality. Where there is a struggle, it is a struggle for power. We should not confound Malthus with nature. Supposing, however, that this struggle exists, and it does indeed occur, its result is unfortunately the very reverse of that which the Darwinian school seems to desire, and of that which, in agreement with them, we might also desire. That is to say, it is always to the disadvantage of the strong, the privileged, and the happy exceptions. Species do not evolve towards perfection. The weak always prevail over the strong, simply because they are the majority, and because they are also the more crafty. Darwin forgot the intellect. That is English. The weak have more intellect. In order to acquire intellect, one must be in need of it. One loses it when one no longer needs it. He who possesses strength flings intellect to the deuce. Let it go hence, translator's footnote, an allusion to a verse in Luther's hymn Lass fahren dahin, das Reich muss uns doch blieben, which Nietzsche applies to the German Empire. End footnote. Say the Germans of the present day, the empire will remain. As you perceive, intellect to me means caution, patience, craft, dissimulation, great self-control, 
and everything related to mimicry. What is praised nowadays as virtue is very closely related to the latter. 15. Casuistry of a Psychologist This man knows mankind. To what purpose does he study his fellows? He wants to derive some small or even great advantages from them. He is a politician. That man yonder is also well versed in human nature, and ye tell me that he wishes to draw no personal profit from his knowledge, that he is a thoroughly disinterested person? Examine him a little more closely. Maybe he wishes to derive a more wicked advantage from his possession, namely, to feel superior to men, to be able to look down upon them, no longer to feel one of them. This disinterested person is a despiser of mankind, and the former is of a more humane type, whatever appearances may seem to say to the contrary. At least he considers himself the equal of those around him, at least he classifies himself with them. 16. The psychological tact of Germans seems to me to have been set in doubt by a whole series of cases which my modesty forbids me to enumerate. In one case, at least, I shall not let the occasion slip for substantiating my contention. I bear the Germans a grudge for having made a mistake about Kant and his backstairs philosophy, as I call it. Such a man was not the type of intellectual uprightness. Another thing I hate to hear is a certain infamous and. The Germans say, Goethe and Schiller. I even fear that they say Schiller and Goethe. Has nobody found Schiller out yet? But there are other ands which are even more egregious. With my own ears I have heard, only among university professors it is true, men speak of Schopenhauer and Hartmann. Translator's footnote, a disciple of Schopenhauer who blunted the sharpness of his master's pessimism, and who watered it down for modern requirements. End translator's note. 17. The most intellectual men, provided they are also the most courageous, experience the most excruciating tragedies, but on that very account they honor life, because it confronts them with its most formidable antagonism. 18. Concerning the conscience of the intellect, nothing seems to me more uncommon today than genuine hypocrisy. I strongly suspect that this growth is unable to flourish in the mild climate of our culture. Hypocrisy belongs to an age of strong faith, one in which one does not lose one's own faith in spite of the fact that one has to make an outward show of holding another faith. Nowadays, a man gives it up, or, what is still more common, he acquires a second faith.
In any case, however, he remains honest. Without a doubt, it is possible to have a much larger number of convictions at present than it was formerly. Possible, that is to say, allowable, that is to say, harmless. From this, there arises an attitude of toleration towards oneself. Toleration towards oneself allows of a greater number of convictions. The latter live comfortably side by side, and they take jolly good care, as all the world does today, not to compromise themselves. How does a man compromise himself today? When he is consistent, when he pursues a straight course, when he has anything less than five faces, when he is genuine. I very greatly fear that modern man is much too fond of comfort for certain vices. And the consequence is that the latter are dying out. Everything evil, which is the outcome of strength and will, and maybe there is nothing evil without the strength of will, degenerates in our muggy atmosphere into virtue. The few hypocrites I have known only imitated hypocrisy. Like almost every tenth man today, they were actors. End Part 1 Chapter 9 This recording is in the public domain. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.